There's partners and teammates here. There's allies all around us who, who want to change the world and change the system. And I'm not saying this is the answer, but I do know that what we've been doing is not an answer. And I, I come back to, if not this, what? If not now, when? And if not us, who? And the only answers I can give to those questions are this, now, us. That was Stephen Hayes, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Hayes. Stephen Hayes is an emeritus professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and president of the Institute for Better Health, a 45-year-old charitable organization dedicated to better mental and behavioral health. With 47 books and nearly 700 scientific articles published, Dr. Hayes is one of the most cited psychologists in the world as he continues to innovate in the field of psychology. He is also the developer of relational frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy. Some of the topics we explore in this episode include the launching of the PsychFlex and MindGrapher apps, how this opens up the potential for 24-7 integration of treatment, the ways we can better attend to often ignored client issues, the limitations of the DSM and its history, moving away from a one-size-fits-all approach to treatment, the current development of new data sets and statistical methods, and hope for the future of behavioral health and helping people generally. It's always an honor to speak with Steve Hayes. Uh, I have such immense gratitude for having him back on the podcast for a third time. The way he has committed to a lifelong journey of helping others and holding lightly on the way it needs to look or play out is really inspiring. Um, For all of you listening who are in a helping profession, I definitely recommend checking out PsychFlex and MindGrapher. You can get a free trial, and it's super cool to see how this can change the way we work with clients. I'll leave a link in the show notes for that. And thank you all for being here and listening to the show. I can't believe we're approaching episode 50. It's wild. If you want to support the podcast in a more direct way, it'd mean a lot if you could subscribe and leave a review. You can also make a donation if you'd like to help cover some of the costs of running the show. And as always, just your continued support and listening and sharing with other people in the community is more than enough. So yeah. All right. Well, I hope you all have a great day and let's get into the conversation with Dr. Stephen Hayes. In our last conversation, I think to quote you, you said you were currently gushing money to build an app and that app has been created now. Yes, it has. It's launched and there's actually two of them. 
And so uh, that's been quite a journey for me. You know, I've retired from the academy, but I'm working harder than ever on a lot of things. But the app is first and foremost, not because the app itself is important, but the vision that's inside it is important. So uh, beginning of August, uh, we launched PsychFlex. And that has a really cool vision in it of being about empowering practitioners to reach into their clients' lives in their 24-7 world. If you're seeing a client once a week, that's one out of 168 hours. What's happening in the 167 other hours? And of course, we reach out, we do homework and all that. But can you do it in a way that your clients actually feel like they're you're walking with them? And I think we've come up with something that really allows you to do that. But the other piece that's in just that part of what I'm doing uh, with PsychFlex is if you really start walking away from top-down normative categorical ideas that are built into the DSM, the ICD, and the rest, uh, then the individual problems and aspirations of your clients become what's the focus. And we haven't, you know, even if you think you're doing that, if you're a practitioner, you've been kind of socialized out of it by these normative categories in ways that are really not good, I think. And so in the app, it isn't just that we're going to reach out in the 24-7 world. We're going to reach out broadly across the various kinds of problems and prosperity goals that a client has. And I'll put some meat on that bones in just a second, but and maybe convince the part of your audience is actually actually in service delivery or in helping professions that that has not been what we've been doing for a long time. And we need to go back to it uh, for very important human reasons. But then as of Cyber Monday, something else happened, which is the other shoe hit the ground and I've been working on for the three years. I've been building this whole system, ecosystem really, uh, which is MindGrapher, a separate app controlled by Institute for Better Health, a charitable organization that I am president of, uh, became a plug-in into PsychFlex. And uh, in about a month from now, it will become a plug-in to another app that's only available in Dutch, but it's very broad and cool kind of thing. And what MindGrapher does is takes this next step of say, okay, if you're not going to use normative categories, what are you going to use? Well, we have an idea of that. Use processes of change measured longitudinally within the lives of clients and then use cutting-edge statistics that are not bell curves and standard deviations where you compare to others, but are more like um, the kind of uh, artificial intelligence tools that are being used inside the ups and downs of your own life to say what lifts you up and what pushes you down mm. and then feed that information up into the providers who then can use, let's say, a psych flex, but not just that, their therapy sessions to target the specific problems of processes of change that are most important for you right now for this goal, uh, which is a completely different uh, vision, but yet it echoes right back to functional analysis and things that are in our field at the beginning, but have been lost and never really were fully deployed. And then the 
third part of all that, and the real goal of the whole, the whole thing in a way, the reason I say things like, this project is the most important thing I've ever done in my life, is that it turns out if you really want to know how processes of change work individually for people, you need massive numbers of people. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a paradox. In order for the individual to be important, we have to learn how to have that be true and not let individuals be error terms inside a big collective called a group. But then you have to repeat that over and 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 learn how to do that. And so the fully de-identified database from the things I just said to you go into a, uh, a data system with right of refusal and disappearance and all those things, but fully de-identified even if you broke in, there'd be no possible way you could figure out who those people are. And world-class scientists you know, building a wall around it, but one that is very easily penetrable by pro-social purposes and research purposes. But Big Pharma and Apple and Google can keep their dirty hands off it. Mm. That gives us the chance to have the data we need to pound a wooden stake through the heart of the DSM and the ICD and just declare that enough enough is enough and these top-down normative categories have done enough harm to human beings and we're putting an end to it. Mm. Wow, there's so much there. About a, a thousand doors just opened up we could walk through. On the first two parts with PsychFlex and MindGrapher, it's almost like we're able to now do what we wish we could do as clinicians if we could follow around a client 24-7 for both assessment and treatment purposes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And sending out little nudges and bumps that are really short, you know, because in the modern era, people don't want to listen to 20-minute rants. Um, and so a lot of what's in PsychFlex, we started off with 150 elements as of this morning, we just added another 30. We're cl- closing in on 400 elements. At this rate, we'll easily pass 800 after one year of deployment. Could even be 1,000. It's going to be a lot of cool little tiny things, little meditation exercises or funny videos or sayings or um, exercises or, or interactives or cartoons or but, and they're not meant to replace therapy. They're meant to amplify. I don't like the vision of AI therapists, but AI tools to support therapists so that they can, with less stress, less burnout, support more people in a broader range of areas. Man, that sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so we think we've found the sweet spot here. And it's... In a way, back to the future, but it's back to the future in such a different way with AI tools and with just-in-time interventions and with micro-kernelized interventions that are process-organized that it really is something that's never existed before. And uh, I think has a pretty good chance of making a profound difference in the lives of professionals and those they serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I love the app. It's super intuitive and there's so much in there to dive into. And 
Yeah, if we just honor the modern context and how much people are using their phones and integrated in that way, to be able to have another app on someone's phone where you could they could go to and slow down and have a minute or two of engagement with content that can move the needle in a more helpful way, it's really cool. Yeah, and we get really, really, really cool feedback, both from providers and from from their clients, saying that they feel as though their therapist or their provider are walking with them. Mm-hmm. It's an amplification of the therapeutic alliance and relationship, not a substitute for it. It's not like, here's a self-help book or, you know, here's a self-help program or app. And it's not like that at all. It's more like, I picked this thing here for you. This might be helpful. And even if the you can upload your own content. You can put up your own. I mean, just get in front of your phone. You can do plenty good enough quality videos and audios and the rest if you know just a little bit about how to set it up. But if you don't even want to do that, you're sending out things from world-class content providers. And people feel as though it's not someone else. They feel as though it's kind of like a co-therapist, but it's actually in the name of their therapist or their provider their coach, their OTPT, whatever. It's not necessarily just psychotherapy. Teachers, I don't care. But if you're involved in behavior change, you know, you need to be able to reach out and help people with evidence-based kernels linked to evidence-based processes that are fitted to the needs of the individual. And um, we started there with functional analysis long, long ago. But all we had were direct contingency principles and kind of seat-of-the-pants ideas about how to personalize. Now we can do it in a much more sophisticated way. Mm. And in a way that's much broader in a way. I, I, I put a little teaser in the earlier thing of maybe I could give you an example. Can I give you an example of a problem that's just left on the floor? Just left Please. on the floor. Okay, if you're a provider of any kind almost, in healthcare, in psycho, you know, psychotherapy, you name it. 15% of the people you're talking to have ringing in their ears. And the numbers are going up, not down. Because kids are putting phones in their ears and stuff. They're getting tinnitus earlier and earlier. You're looking, you're looking at an old punk rocker. I got ringing in my ears all the time, you know, because it's in front of 20-foot tall speakers with tatted guys kicking out uh, sound. It's a lot higher than an aircraft engine and you're going to stand four feet away. Well, you think it's going to happen. <laughs> you're going to get old and your ears are going to be ringing constantly. Hello. Well, okay, fine. One out of five of those people, the ringing is significantly distressing, often the most distressing thing in their life. Almost nobody says to a psychologist, oh, by the way, I've got it ringing in my ears. Mm-hmm. You'd say it to a physician, and they'd refer you to an audiologist or an otolaryngologist who will give you, frankly, crap technology that won't help you, or they'll tell you the story about how you can't be helped. Mm-hmm. So other than checking for really rare forms of cancer, there's a few things they can do and should do. You should, if you have ringing in your ears, you should see a good hearing specialist first. But most of what they're going to do about this distress of the noise. They don't know what to do, but guess who does? Eh, the people I'm talking to, if they're listening to your podcast and they're doing treatment, because process-oriented act and CBT is best of breed interventions for 
tinnitus distress. Mm -hmm. You can learn not to attend to it. You can learn not to be very upset by it. But not by doing things like suppressing the upset or trying not to think about it. It's the same thing as panic or anything else. It has that paradoxical loopy thing that we're used to dealing with, especially people listening to your podcast. We're used to dealing with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a person came in for anxiety, depression, substance use, but they got ringing in their ears. Why couldn't you say, you know, by the way, you know that stuff we're working on, we're making some progress on, and I see you getting more flexible. Do you know you can apply it over here too? Let me send you a few things that will help you learn how to apply it, at least get you started. And then there's other stuff in there that I can help build on. Oh, there's a list of problems like that that is along my arm. Mm -hmm. And it's almost criminal that we're not asking the questions. We just have not been trained to. Yeah, what Mm -hmm. about your back pain? You know, what about that sense of loneliness? You know, whatever the thing might be. What what about that, you know, chronic injury or the whatever? Um, so we're going to, what PsychFlex contains, and it took me a while to see this, process-based vision, go from a one-hour week to 24-7. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. And then as it reveals itself, say, wait a minute, well, then what? What are the problems? So, for example, inside PsychFlex MindGrabber, I think it's within the next two weeks, we throw a switch and we have a whole intake form that lists almost every problem you can think of. Uh, and you ask your clients before the first session, go through this and tick, 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 tick. And then it'll keep here are the five most important problems that the person has. Uh, but not ground through the uh, top-down normative signs and symptoms stuff, which often misses whole areas that might be really important to the person but are are not uh, necessarily talked about. Totally, yeah. And I, again, there's so many directions to go there, but I totally agree how there's so many things we're just leaving on the floor, to use your terminology, that what we know how to do from a process-oriented act perspective can make such a big difference if you know how to ask the right questions and apply it. And that's why my my wife is about to graduate from a doctorate, a physical therapy program, and she's really interested in how ACT can be used in PT for the chronic pain world. Absolutely. And so we have a program coming in chronic pain. I'll, I'll mention the person. I usually don't do that, but... He outed himself a little bit earlier, Lance McCracken, a world-class chronic pain person, one of the best in the world. The reason I don't mention him is I don't want to push, push, put pressure on him. When we first came out with PsychFlex, we listed all these people, and we immediately figured that's not good because then people are saying, is it done yet? Is it done yet? Is it done yet? And it's not fair. Most of our content providers, and we have this amazing list. I would love to walk you through and name some names because they really are name dropping experiences. Like really, you got that person and that person. Yeah, we got them. Um, and by the way, doing it all without payment. What I've said to them, if I ever make money, you'll make money. But you know, this could be years away. This is not about money. And over here in Minecrafter, I'm giving them money, not making money. I'm a volunteer president. It's a charitable organization, but, uh, We've got a world-class list of folks who 
are bought into the vision of kernelized evidence-based therapy linked to processes where they're collecting the measures and we begin to learn how to do this even better as a substitute for what we've been doing with uh, these uh, diagnostic categories that are chasing latent diseases that are never found. So um, it kind of broadens your vision. You might think, oh my goodness, I'm going to be overwhelmed now. I've got to be an expert in tinnitus and I've got to be an expert in chronic pain. And I got No, you don't. I mean, to your... Uh, uh, to the physical therapist, you can say, you don't have to be an expert in depression, for example. You can work on your chronic pain using something like Psychflex, but also when the process catch hold of the person is getting entangled with sadness, here's a few things that might be of help to you. It doesn't make you a psychotherapist. You could be an, you know, an expert in uh, occupational therapy or in nursing or in teaching or in running a business or in you know, heck, Vikram Patel, you know, one, a Time 100 guy, a global health specialist, has a big grant from the Wellbeing Trust to teach neighborhood people to talk to their neighbors about evidence-based therapy, not to make them therapists. Well, it, why? Because it's not one out of five people who have mental health disorders. It's five out of five people who need help with their mental resistance. We're mental resilience, all of us. So we need to create a world that has the professionals will do fine. Nobody should be afraid they're going to have their profession stolen from them. Heck, most of the people I know, they don't even have any slots open to take new clients. What are you talking about? Yes. People are desperate to try to get somebody who will even see them. Well, can we instead figure out a way to help people in a way that's broader and yet better, faster, cheaper so that you can serve more people without burnout. And you can also, you know, uh, democratize some of the process-based information that will prevent these problems, catch them when they're early. Of course you can talk to your neighbor about it. Or of course the, you know, the nurse at your, uh, your uh, family practice uh, um, visit, might be able to say something to you around something that you're struggling with. I mean, all hands on deck. Yeah, we got to get out of this world where we see these arbitrary boxes that we put people into as so unique and distinct that as soon as somebody so shy, shows sign of being in a different box, we panic and need to refer them to somebody else who they're not going to get in with. It's, we really got to transcend that world. I agree with that so much. You've seen the ridiculous things like, you know, more than almost 11 million combinations of signs and symptoms that fit into the DSM. If you add specifiers, it's 161 septillion combinations. Well, but here's that even even that I might accept, you know, if, if you could get data help to walk through that. But then you read the beginning part of the book. It says, oh, by the way, this doesn't help you pick which treatment to use. It's in writing in the book. It's not been validated as a way of picking treatment. So what is it for? Well, to have a nomenclature so that we can go on a a journey to find out what the functional entities are, the the etiology course in response to treatment that defines a disease. And that worked sometimes in academic medicine. We've found 
syndromes became diseases. Sometimes it didn't. Cancer is my usual nominee. And eventually people got sick and tired of saying, you know, whoever first described the lesion that was red on one side and brown on the other and shaped like a heart got to have be famous forever because they got their name on a freaking picture. But it didn't tell you what to do and nobody's surviving better. And they finally said, this isn't giving us better survival rates. We're going back to the lab. We're going to study oncogenes. And, you know, and then, you know, you got a 50% better chance of surviving leukemia now. And if the way I usually explain it to people around what's the vision inside MindGraph or process-based therapy, you know, where the ACT CBS world is going in terms of practicality. Suppose you had liver cancer. You got you in, you got diagnosed, you got cancer, liver cancer. Okay. And so what do you do for liver cancer? Well, normally we do this and this. And then you read somewhere that people know how to actually measure the genetic and epigenetic features of the tumor. And there's a hundred different kinds, very similar looking, but a hundred different kinds. And they have to do with, with regard which genes are turned on or off. And you can impl- you can alter them differently by medications. And the name for each specific one is 43 letters and numbers long that have to do with a specific uh, epigenetic up and down regulation of gene systems. Let's just say. And I tell you, okay, here's your choice. You can get what's normally done, one size fits all, we'll cross our fingers and pray. Or we can do a full assay of your tumor but unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell you, it'll come up with a name that's 43 things long. And, you know, you won't be able to just say it to everybody. And and only a few people really know what that means. Which do you pick? You're never going to say, I want normal. Never. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the rationale for the DSM? We have a communication system. Yeah, about yeah. something with no treatment utility. And 50 years later... After spelling, you know, scores of billions of dollars, our effect sizes are going down. Hello? Wake up. People don't, they don't care about your nomenclature. What is this, a, you know, a, a class and how to take notes? They care. Can you help them Yes, with the problems yeah. they have and the goals that they aspire to, both positive and negative goals that take you into therapy. Yes. Well, we can do that now. We can do that with ideographically designed combinations of processes of change. It's not a full and complete set, but we already did the study showing that an expanded version of psychological flexibility, you've got a wonderful name of your podcast because, boy, is it prescient. You know, an expanded view of psychological flexibility can summarize 100% of what of the replicated mediators of change in psychothera- and psychosocial interventions. 100%. Mm. It got expanded a little bit, and I can talk about how, but we published that study in Behavior Research and Therapy last year, the so-called Death Star Study, where we looked at every single study ever done in the history of the world of a randomized trial with a mediational analysis using a measure that had been replicated at least once somewhere in the literature and shown to be an important pathway of change. Traditional psychological flexibility measures counted for 55%. You add in relationships and social processes, 
diet, sleep, exercise, brain circuits, and biological processes, you're coming up another 10 or 15%. And then you look at what's less, and by golly, they still fit into psychological flexibility if expanded a little bit. Mm-hmm. Cognitive mm-hmm. reappraisal. Yeah, but that's really cognitive flexibility. You know, self-efficacy. Yeah, but that's really having motivation, meaning a purpose where you know you can organize and you will, you're committed to organizing your behavior around it. Isn't that values and committed action just said in a different way? Yeah, I think so. Just walk through it. Everything fits into this more kind of evolutionary model of psychological flexibility. So I'm not saying act uberalis. I mean, all these other different methods of moving things now come into our world where we have no, if you're an act person, reason to say, oh, no, no, we won't do reappraisal. No, just do reappraisal the way it should be done. Yeah. The way it's always had its effects, which is helping people to be more cognitively flexible. And by the way, it's going to be easier to do that after you get some diffusion skills in the room. That's an empirical fact. So whether that's called act or not, I don't care. My point being, we actually have agreement now. I mean, Paul Sarkovsky's and arch critic of ACT just published an article saying the core process that's changes everything in CBT is psychological flexibility. Mm. And then put in a few things about that are critical of ACT. Okay, great. So when your opponents, he's a lovely man, but an old curmudgeon, uh, but when your opponents are agreeing with you, let's just take the win and say, okay, you don't like ACT but you agree it's psychological flexibility, let's work on how to do that. And then to the field, I have to say, and you need to know, and our data are showing, and it's right inside the app, even those processes can sometimes go awry. It has to be fitted to context, to the history, and to the circumstances of the individual, and that requires new stats, new ways of thinking and measuring, but we have some that really are working well. So uh, don't think that we will ever go back to the one-size-fits-all universe, even if we go process-focused. We won't. Yeah. There are times when flexibility processes are not what you need. At particular ones. I'll give you, can I give you an example? Mm-hmm. All right, you're a first responder. You drive an ambulance. You arrive and... People are on the street, literally, with their brains on the street. You have to look at that. And you got to make a decision. you got to triage, right? Triage means dividing it into the thirds, right? What are the thirds? This person is injured but can do okay without my intervention. That person is injured and no matter what I do, is probably going to die. This person is injured and if I intervene now, I might be able to save him. Well, that means I'm going to hear the cries of the person who is going to die, and I might be making a mistake. I might have been able to save him, but I've triaged into this one because I'm more likely to help this one. Yeah. Well, emotional openness is not what you need at that moment. And we've actually seen the data now that, yeah, in most circumstances, emotional openness is helpful. In that one, you need to find a way to sort of flip the switch, and that's just not important right now. My feelings are not what issues right now. This person and my skill, my commitment to what I trained to be, 
as a first responder is what is needed right now. Mm. Then you have to know how to flip the switch when the context changes and you go home and you got to figure out a way to process that day, including some horrific scenes that will never leave your mind. You'll never forget the brains that you saw splattered on the street and some, and some sounds that will never be unheard. The cries of people who you could not save. And you're going to have to, oh, not have to, but life is asking you to do this really hard Buddha-level thing of opening up and feeling and then reorienting and not doing that by hammering down martinis and slapping your spouse. Well, that's a challenge. But guess what? We all got a computer in our pocket that's given every one of us that same challenge. You want to see the bombs fall in Ukraine? You want to see the Russian soldiers' bodies flying out of the, or the, you know, the apartment building in uh, Kiev with the people running with burning clothing on? I mean, in the modern world, that first responder is us. Hmm. Well, what does that mean? It means our science and practice needs to be up to the speed of creating modern minds for a modern world where one size fits all cannot be the answer because the context has to be kept track of. And for this person, depending on your skills across these different flexibility skills, this person may need this, and this other person needs that. And some of the things we're confident that for most people, most of the time are helpful, for this person at this moment is not helpful. Yes, yes. That's a little disorienting. We're right, used to just right. playing our deck of cards, and the same cards get played. I'm an acceptance guy. I'm a values guy. I can show you the idiomic data now. We had to create a new name to get out of normative that individualized, then nomothetic, but all it helps you see the individual, the upside-down statistics in which the locking down the person is what you do first, and then you look to the group as a source of error instead of the opposite, locking down the central tendency in a group. That's what's true, and the individual's source of error. That's what we've been doing, and it's false. It doesn't tell you what to do about processes of change. And if we do that successfully... We can be fleet of foot enough to to know, yeah, I'm going to want to have that values conversation, but right this second is exactly the wrong thing to do. Right this second, the best we can do is being present, just focusing on the now, not even on the thing that was so horrific, but just showing up to how your feet feel when they hit the floor. Let's start there. Now, of course, part of a lot of this is heady and necessarily we need data and tracking. But, but when you're there in front of a client, some of what you're saying, too, is like almost intuitive. Yeah, it sure is. And you can see it and you can teach people to see it. You can see the grimace. You can see the grin, the, 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 the rictus. that's not a smile. You can see the clutching of the hand. You can feel the pauses in between words. You notice the eye twitching. You see them look away that, you know, and I teach those skills and we measure those skills. Uh, and even just listening to the words, you know, we're, we were busy teaching uh, AI, chat GPT and things like it. 
to recognize processes and made a lot of progress. We can do a, a really good job. You can take a therapy transcript and put it in some of the tools that are coming out of the research and development Safe. labs and MindGrapher, and it'll tell you exactly what's going on. You know, this person's avoiding their emotions and, you know, pretty amazing stuff. That's far out. But there's a big but in the history of the world when you compared uh, algorithms that are numerically driven, if they're linked to an outcome that is uh, reliable, to clinical intuition, always the numbers can beat it. So you want your spidey sense in there, you want your intuition out there, but you also want it to be vetted against and shaped by good feedback. Mm. Best kind of feedback would be numerical not that you're thinking in terms of numbers, but the, but that would be quantifiable and immediate and sensitive, sensitive and specific feedback, right? Um, in every area of life, when you do that and you have enough exposure to it, you get ec- to be an expert. I mean, you take something like hitting a baseball. It's, it, it's felt. It's intuitive. If, if you start thinking about the parabolic function of a ball, there's no way you can hit a home run. It's... It doesn't happen that slow. Yeah, but the science of how to learn to hit a ball could include putting you through an exercise regimen and a training regimen that fine-tunes those. Take sports psychology as an example. They can measure and will. If you're a professional ball player, they've got cameras on you every single swing. Mm-hmm, They've mm-hmm. got numerical values about the speed of the swing, the angle of the ball. Everything is. And what does that do? We've got home run hitters to the nines now, or didn't used to. We've got fastballs that are coming in faster than they ever, ever did. Stressing the elbow, more Tommy John injuries than anything. I was just doing a talk on sports psychology. So I guess I'm thinking about it and I was reading some of the, application of this in the Toronto Blue Jays organization that are very heavily act-oriented. Maybe we'll go there. But So coming back to what you were saying, Tom, I agree that intuition is the normal way we're going to feel the presence of processes Mm -hmm. and respond quickly and immediately in the moment. And that can be amplified and simplified and, and supplemented by good AI tools linked to high-density longitudinal data that allow us to um, do an even better job of shaping our intuition and that give us some um, specific direction, like think about with this person right about now, diffusion might be really important. Um and that's why I say we're going to need massive numbers of people with massive amounts of uh, longitudinal data. And that world is coming. It's already here in areas like I just mentioned with, uh, you know, learning how to be an Olympic athlete, for example. Not yet on the psychology side, all on the physiology side. Right? We can have it be on the psychology side and we'll do better, I believe. And that's what's in the app. But MindGrapher, in in the research and development part of it, is only the most primitive things, correlations between processes and outcomes that are released now 
But if I were to show you the R&D labs, I mean, your jaw would drop. I already mentioned some things like the AI tools that can recognize even the transcripts processes that can take any self-report item, even ones you made up and tell you quite reliably what the processes are that are being tapped in by that item. Mm -hmm. We no longer need, I don't think psychometrically validated scales. We need process and outcome vetted items, which can include asking the client themselves to make up one. So if you're dealing with indigenous peoples, for example, who have a totally different view of values, you don't have to worry about it. Have have them say it in their own words. And um, that future is coming of this, without producing chaos, of being able to so individualize even our measures and our our analyses that um, we know we're amplifying the same kinds of things that you're hoping to have and do inside your clinical intuition mm-hmm. that's based on your experience of working with individuals and focusing on how they change. In some sense, we're trying to move away from the group telling us about the individual and the individual and collections of individuals telling us about the group. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, why didn't we do that in the first place? Because our biostatistics are based on bell curves and standard deviations, correlations, and so forth. They came out of the psychology of individual differences, starting 150 years ago at Galton, and then through all of that era, that were consciously oriented towards dividing people into the worthy and unworthy, the fit and the unfit, the able and the unable, because they were all driven by eugenics. Mm-hmm. It was all driven by eugenics. Galton created the field of eugenics. R.A. Fisher, Fisher Z, you know, is a a professor of eugenics. Carl Pearson, Pearson's R, a professor of eugenics. Frank Yates, the Yates Correction of Chi-Square, a eugenicist. 67% of the presidents of the APA from 1892 to 1947 were card-carrying eugenicists. So look, we've created a system and you think, oh, this happened later, DSM is later. No, no, no. The whole idea of diagnosis, look, Bleuler, schizophrenia, right? Ten years after he creates the, the definition and description, go read his textbook in 1924. We should sterilize them all and not allow them to have children. That's what it was for. When you diagnose people... You know, if you hear cackling, it's people in their graves who are eugenicists, you know. Ooh, isn't that great? Intelligence tests, where did they come from? Galton. Galton called for them. He didn't know how to do them. I mean, my mentor's mentor's mentor was the first infant IQ test. So this is my own lineage. Why? Well, because raw G, nature and nurture. Who first said nature and nurture? Who first said Raji? Galton, the father of eugenics. What was the title of his first book? Hereditary Genius, about how we're supposed to, we're de-evolving, but if we allowed the upper rich white UK folks to have babies and not those black and brown people, and God help us, not those Jews, then we'll have a better world. You know, like, man, when, if, if clinicians are upset with the 
ill-fitting suits we're getting shoved into by our statistics and our diagnoses. Take a little breath in and see if you don't smell something that's rotten at the core. Yeah. Yeah. Why are people being shoved into categories? Ask that question and don't listen to the superficial things like, oh, then we have a name for everything. Yeah. No, that's not what drove it originally. I feel like people who don't even have any information of what you just talked about with the history of the DSM, you sometimes like even know it in our gut. There's this really terrible feeling when we're forced to diagnose somebody in the first session. We talk to them for an hour and then we're in this position of labeling them like that. And so we're trying to find these workarounds of giving people adjustment disorder. And Us as practitioners, we have been fighting it because we don't really believe in it. Most of us like, you know, what is the single most common diagnosis in the DSM? It accounts for 50% of the diagnoses in normal systems of care. And the answer is not otherwise specified. Yeah. This is a joke. It's a bad joke, but in it, in it kind of, the people who were, were, were kind of laughing with the folks who have to write that down. I'm not laugh, laughing at the person who said mm-hmm. nothing otherwise specified. They wrote it down for a good human reason, I think, because they felt yes. there's something wrong here. And the system said, you have no alternative. Mm-hmm. They'll get nothing. They'll get no support. They'll get no money. You won't be paid unless you fill this out. And so you fill it out in a way that does the least harm and that makes you feel the least creepy and that maybe is the least sticky, you know? So it's, it's a crazy system we've lived in. And part of what's going on with Cyclex and MindGrapher and idiomics and process-based work, which was always in the ACT community, I have to say, it's something... It's just be, what was implicit has become explicit. And, you know, you, you discover really what you've been doing. You know, uh, you know, ACT was developed. Uh, eight, first workshop was in uh, 1981 or two in North Carolina. So it's more than 40 years old. The first book is almost 20 years later. But the, and why so slow? Part of it is because trying to work out what these processes of change are, what the measures are, what the components are, philosophy of science, it's hard to do this in this way. You know, this radically function, radical functionalism is not is something your mind fights you on. Just like clients sometimes are fighting against diffusion because you want to know the one true and correct answer. And, but implicit in that was the space in which eventually we would find some sort of kind of meta-theoretical or meta-methodological way forward that would fit our assumptions and our purposes and how we think about things. We're there now. We're actually there. Idiomic stats are not creepy. They were wonderful. You really feel so. You're like you're looking more clearly at the life trajectory of this person. Most of the stuff that we do in traditional stats doesn't have that feeling. Diagnosis in the sense of here's how all these processes fit together. And by golly, I can see now why you've been stuck because this leads to this, but then this leads to that, but then that leads back to this. So it's simple. It's self-amplifying. What if we do this? Maybe we could set up a virtuous cycle that's self-amplifying. That doesn't feel like shoving people into cubbyholes. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. feels like somebody who's 
tied up in knots and you're you're figuring out where to pull to to loosen the bonds that are tying them down. It feels like liberation strategies, not categorization strategies. And, you know, as the evidence builds, and some of the stuff we already know that's coming is shocking. It's just shocking. Maybe I'll tell you one that we just submitted about a week ago. But, uh, or resubmitted, it's on round three at the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science. But I think it's going to go in finally. Um, I think those who are on the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of this, uh, with tools like MyGrapher and PsychFlex, but also now with the stats coming out, boy, am I starting to speak in a louder voice because I really feel as though uh, not only can we see that what has been done is unhelpful, but that we have a real empirical alternative. This really can happen. We really can put a wooden stake through the heart of this uh, walking zombie called the DSM and mobilize the science and the practitioners in a way that doesn't ask them to check their intuition at the door, their clinical skills at the door. Just follow what the researchers say, oh, please. They've been lied to. And they've been lying to, uh, lied to themselves and uh, by the stats, and they've been lying to the clinicians, and we think we can correct it. Mm, yeah, let's restore the dignity of the, the individual person. That individual person, their story, yeah, is what what's matters, and getting stats that illuminate that. I... Did another teaser there saying, oh, maybe I could tell you. Can I tell you the shocking finding? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's the shocking finding. If I sing this song in front of statisticians, they kind of sneer at me and they say, we know the average doesn't reflect the individuals. Of course, we've known that forever. And then I talk about ergodicity, which is the theory drawn from physics, which shows that it can never work. And they say, we know that ergodicity is built into our assumptions, and yes, we can't meet them, but it doesn't really matter because now we model the individual. We do it. Individual growth curves and multi-level modeling. And, you know, this is so yesterday. I, I can't even believe you're raising the issue. Okay. We'll take our form of stats where we don't peek at another person until we model the person that we're working with. Then we peek. And if we learn something by seeing possible similarities, we go back, add that and remodel. And if the group helps us see the individual better, great. We'll put those things in. If it fuzzes the individual, no, we're not putting it in. Idiomics, we call it. Well, we compare idiomic approaches to multi-level modeling where the individual is put in as the first step. And here's what you get. Uh, let's just take a data set. We've got about 200 people of 60, 70 data points over time for each person. So we look within the persons over time, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, using the kind of tools that are in MindGrapher. Then we use multi-level model. And then we look at the relationship. So I'll give you a piece of data that's in there. Um, a values um, item that says um, 
let's see, how does, how does it actually worded? Shoot, I can't think the exact wording, but it basically is, you know, I try to do what's important to me or something like that, some sort of wording like that. And then distress over sadness, right? Put it through multi-metal modeling and it says, if you just focus on those values, boy, everybody is doing better with distress over sadness. Almost no one does poorly with that. Multi-level modeling, it has a, a curve that looks more like a tower. Very steep up, very steep down, very small spread. Be totally confident in this finding. Values, helpful. Now you do it the way we're doing it inside MindGrapher. Okay, well, you have a normal distribution, all right. And the peak is exactly in the same place as multi-level modeling. Says the same thing at the group level. Yeah, but look at the bottom scale. And there's this thing called zero. Why would you focus there? Because that means the correlation went from positive to negative. Which means that now it looks like the more focus on values, the more distressed by sadness. How many people? About one out of five. Significant within themselves? Yeah, about one out of ten. Look, I'm not saying values are bad for people, but I'm saying, but any clinician would know. You're going to show up to your values, you know, sometimes you're so close to things that are emotionally distressing because you hurt where you care. You better have other things in your protocol than just that. Mm -hmm, Especially mm -hmm. for this person. Yes. This person is becoming distressed. I went up uh, to Marshall Linehan's shop uh, years ago, and she wanted to know about how to put values in. I did a workshop and stuff like that. And she said, yeah, but with my clients, if I lead with that, they get so emotionally dysregulated, they just start cutting on themselves. And I said, yeah, I know. Because you don't do that conversation with that kind of history of abuse, for example, and things like that, until you have some emotional flexibility skills. Then you can have that conversation. So you have some diffusion, non-judgment skills. Then you can have, and she put it into phase two of DBT. There's values. Mm -hmm. It's in phase two. Conversely, you're working with people struggling with addiction. You might want it in phase one. They've already got some of the best technology on the planet for how to be happy all the time. Put this stuff in your veins. Woohoo! Yeah. But that's really not, it's not happiness, number one. Number two, the only thing that would take you out of that is because you want a different kind of life than that, what that leads you to. You know, if you addict a chimpanzee to heroin, they never asked to be in a 12-step program. Never happened. Um, but people do. Mm -hmm. Because they, they can feel what they've lost inside being joy junkies. Mm. So um, my message to those listening is that, number one, all of our top-down normative categories are wrong and wrong often when applied to people, and they turn people into error terms unfairly. Number two, if we go ideographically within the person over time, we can do better, but be prepared for all your ideas to be wrong regularly because it'll always depend upon context, situation, history, and 
and goal. And it won't feel unfamiliar except that you're going to have to listen more and you're going to have to be a little humble and you're going to have to really have it be the case that this person and their goals, history, and circumstances are what matters. Wouldn't it be great if the science would help you do that? Mm. Well, that's what we're here to do right now. We are determined we're going to get the scientists on the side of the clinicians. And mm. uh, and that requires, because they, frankly, the clinicians have been far more right than the scientists. And so the nose in the air statisticians just say, we already know that. I say, look at this graph. Tell me what you think you know. And um, we're just now talking with that kind of out loud voice. And we'll see what happens. But my guess is there's going to be some disorientation because there's a real arrogance that's happened inside numbers and uh, the standard way of doing science, uh, behavioral science, that is not leading to increased effect sizes. It's just leading to more and more certainty that we're right, even though we're not getting better. Well, that's not a progressive science. It's just not. There's no science on the planet that is in that situation where for 50 years your effect sizes don't go up and you deserve to beat your chest in pride about how great you are. Bull. That is not good. <laughs> Something's wrong. And I think I know what it is. It's that uh, you're violating your assumptions and you're buying into Galton's eugenic dreams boiled over, over and over again over 150 years. Mm. Well, this leaves me, this conversation leaves me pretty hopeful about the future of our field. I'm super hopeful. I am just having so much fun. And I can see there's such a cool energy there. Because, you know, if I get in front of a group of clinicians and say, you know, I want to kill the DSM, almost every single face lights up. <laughs> I hardly see any frowny faces. You know, practitioners know this thing is not right. They don't know why it's not right, and they're told it's right, and they're, they've been beat into silence by a system, both the science part and the, and the money part. Um, and meanwhile, you know, one out of four women ran antidepressants last year in the U.S. of A. 60% will have side effects, some of which may be permanent. Okay, that's... Does that make sense to you? Uh, doesn't to me. Uh, one out of 25, I can believe it. One out of four, no. So you've got a $1.5 trillion industry rubbing their hands together behind this dirty system. And meanwhile, people are not being uplifted and empowered, neither the clinicians nor the clients they serve. Mm. Well, it it uh, it feels good to be part of this movement that is going to honor people and step up to the plate in a way that people deserve. Yeah, I think I really feel like we're on the cusp of something important where freedom matters, wholeness matters, and individuality including the individual couple, the individual family, the individual organization. I don't mean just the, the barrier, the skin type of individual, but I mean the unit that you're serving and their particular goals 
how to evolve as a system, as a whole system, socially, physically, psychologically. Um, I think we're on the side of the angels, and uh, there's a kind of uh, fellowship uh, or that uh, settles in, you know, kind of a partnership. I just looked up the etymology of fellow. By the way, it has nothing to do with men. That came later. It means a partner or a, a teammate. And um, mm-hmm. there's partners and teammates here. There's uh, allies all around us who who want to change the world and change the system. And I'm not saying this is the answer, but I do know that what we've been doing is not an answer. And I... I come back to, if not this, what? If not now, when? And if not us, who? Mm. And the only answers I can give to those questions are uh, this, now, us. And um, Mm. us is the people who serve, uh, who serve uh, humanity and where where your clients matter. So we'll see. Uh, my kind of sense of how long that will take to play out in a way that really gets the national attention and international attention it deserves. You know, well, I've lived through that before um, with uh, development of act, with uh, third wave. Uh, now with process-based approaches, and now this final thing. Let me say it this way. I think it's, you can count them on your, the number of years on your fingers if we care, if we, mm-hmm. as a fellowship of people who want to create a different journey. And kind of a playful way, we, we wrote one, uh, a team inside Psychflex, uh, based on the Lord of the Rings. And, uh, you know, uh, if you know the story, Sauron was a white angel, didn't mean to be evil, but got really interested in just order. And he knew how to forge. He was, uh, that was his skill. He spent his time learning when he came to Middle Earth and was initially came like Gandalf and the others to help all living creatures, right? But he really wanted order. And uh, I think we're kind of dealing with the eugenicist Mordoth, Mordoth and uh, Sauron, the good clinical scientists who got turned into really wanting order in a way that mm. uh, didn't listen to and allow the cacophony of individuals and the freedom that they have. And um, we don't, I don't think we have to worry about disorder. I think quite the opposite. When we really empower people to be the holy themselves, they're more likely to cooperate, more likely to come in community and work together. This false top-down order isn't what humans need. They need the kind of understanding how to evolve their own life and the cultures and communities they're part of. And yes, that's yes. the game we're playing here. Yeah, where life is understood and moved from the inside out. Yep, exactly. From the scientifically understood inside out. 
but yeah. not yes. understood in a top-down way, but in a bottom-up way. Yes. Wow. That would be cool. Well, I'm inspired, honestly. Yeah, I think if people are listening to this, and I know it may sound like a commercial or something, this isn't the only way, but, you know, check it out. I mean, we've been talking about PsychFlex. You can check it out for free. And if you just use it with a couple of clients, just get that far. There you go. Yeah, I'm holding it up for listeners. I've been playing around with it, and it's really fun and cool. And and it makes you really think about all the possibilities of how you can apply this in treatment, all those things you do where a client comes in and they talk about, oh, I wish I just remembered this in that important choice point moment. And now there's just, I don't know, my mind is just going with all the different applications of it. Yeah, just just today, you know, we, we uploaded uh, – Louise Hayes' DNA V program. We uploaded a program from a world-class group of uh, sports uh, mental performance folks. Why would you want to do that? There, it's like tinnitus because you're working with people, some of whom have sports goals, they have athletic goals, they have, you know, they have their weekend exercises. No, you're probably not working with somebody who wants an Olympic gold medalist medal or whatever. I mean, there are coaches that do that. I've seen people win a gold medal with that coaches, and I know who they are. But, you know, you would never think to ask your client, by the way, do you have any, you know, running goals or any golfing goals or any? You wouldn't do that because, of course, but, but wait a minute. This is, why wouldn't you along the way? You know, I might even be able to help you a little bit with your exercise regimen or your weight loss regimen or being able to give you play tennis better or you name it. Not that anyway. So uh, that's uh, been loaded up and another one is sleep. We just, I think today, if not, it'll be by Monday or Tuesday, just loaded up a really wonderful sleep program from Guy Meadows. A guy who wrote the sleep book, really, really good guy. I mentioned Louise Hayes on the DNA V and aware performance is the, group of uh, sports uh, psychologists that have done the one for athletic goals of our clients. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be kind of fun if we could get in there and, oh, by the way, we can also be useful to you in, I don't know what it is, whatever it is, playing chess, running a mile faster, going to sleep, not being bothered by ringing your ears, having better relationships. What about your sex life? And not have to say things like, oh, I don't do that because I'm not this kind. If you're process-oriented, within your scope of practice, do what you can. On the uh, range of things that people may bring into this situation. And uh, to me, that sounds like a lot of fun. Mm, Well... That sounds like a great place to end. Definitely check out PsychFlex, everyone, and MindGrapher. Really appreciate what you're doing here. I think we're right on the brink of something really important unfolding in our field, and it's cool to be a part of it. Absolutely. We're uh, riding into the uh, kingdom, and we're going to take Sauron down, and we're going to replace it with something where uh, wholeness and freedom matters. Well, thank you so much again for doing this. 
awesome to be with you again. Thank you for the opportunity. It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep. When the entire world kept feeding on my greed.